0: I'm Tatiana Antonella Beya, founder of Goombook, and you're listening to Forward Talks, conversations that matter. This episode continues our special series, Climate Leaders Rising Up to COP28, in partnership with Mastercard and with the support of Dubai Government Media Office. We're sharing inspiring stories of sustainability leaders and climate champions, driving impact from our region to the world. I'm joined today by Alison Anderson-Book, Chief Sustainability Officer at Baker Hughes. Baker Hughes develops and deploys advanced technologies to serve energy and industrial companies looking for more efficient, more reliable, and cleaner solutions. They operate in 120 countries worldwide, and their diverse portfolio of technologies and solutions are transforming how industry works today and in the future. As Baker Hughes' Chief Sustainability Officer, Alison oversees the company's energy transition strategy. In this episode, we address the elephant in the room, fossil fuels and the climate crisis, and we talk about the various pathways to accelerate the energy transition and achieve net zero. Alison also shares her
1: insights after attending the New York Climate Week. Basically, what you hear on the ground is there's kind of this dichotomy that happens. So the first is you've got um, a passionate group of people that will turn up at Climate Week, not to attend the, the forum per se, but more so to demonstrate. And so there were, were people protesting uh, basically fossil fuels and saying fossil fuels are, are bad. They're bad for the, the earth, bad for people, etc. Now, that's a very unnuanced thing to protest, and so then on the other side in all of the meetings, it's a completely different dialogue. That's where uh, the conversation is focused, really about how can we work together. And so I had this really illustrative kind of conversation with a, a woman from um, fashion textiles, and where they said, "Hey, you know, we get that like we don't have uh, garment feedstock." If we don't have a really strong pairing with an oil and gas producer, like basically we've got to have the downstream product from what you guys have. So even if there's an energy transition, we still need you. There is no viable alternative at scale today that we can afford to bring in. And that's a luxury fashion house. I would say they probably could afford it. All right. But it cuts down on their margins considerably as a business owner. So So where are we going with this? We know that oil and gas is the framework of modern society everywhere, okay? And so to basically decouple that and, and say unilaterally it's an evil thing, it's really hard to look at that and say, is something evil if it's really advanced modern society to a place where by and large, with the exception of developing countries and countries that are at war, it's literally the best time in the history of the world for people to be living and the easiest. And we have lights and we have food, okay? People forget you use oil and gas to produce food as well. So so where we go in COP will be really interesting, but the readout of Climate Week was two different opinions and they need to come together. And really people need to realize that, that, that when we talk about energy, it isn't just about energy. It's what energy allows us to produce as the spine of society today.
0: What would be interesting would be to understand where do these two sides meet? And and that could be time. Um, we hosted some time ago a think tank around uh, ESG. And of course, energy was a big topic, the energy transition. Um, and someone in the audience asked this question. They said, how long do we still have to use fossil fuels because we cannot stop today. As you say, fossil fuels are all around us. We need them for mostly everything. We can't do it tomorrow, but can we do it after tomorrow? What is the time frame to say we can do it okay. and it's this amount of time?
1: So I I should state, like, the way people think about energy transition, there's a couple of different things. So let me let me level set really quick. First of all, uh, the energy transition, as that term was initially coined, was really about the phase out of fossil fuels, period. Okay. And you hear a lot of people in our sector talking about decarbonizing oil and gas. And that always sort of like, mm, as a being a little bit more of a word purist, um, you can't take that out of a hydrocarbon because it's a, it's carbon it's okay, general. and so you can't decarbonize a carbon, and so that's just me being a little little exacting on words, but um but knowing that the group of people who think fossil fuels are bad um, are viewing the energy transition as elimination of that, you've really got to look at your your near your mid and long term horizon, like how would you get to that end game, right? when we think about the energy transition in our sector, we really think about. Uh, phasing out um, carbon dioxide emissions and so that's different it's a different framing of the of the problem really so so getting at that question then how long okay a transition takes a long time anytime we do it and the the energy transition um People might make the case that we're always transitioning from one energy type to another, but this is a pretty different thing that we're talking about. When you when you look at the history of, of fuel types, I've challenged people to tell me one that we phased out since man started with with fire, right? We still haven't phased out fire. We still use that, okay? If the lights go out, people use candles. <laughs> and so so you still see people using the most basic kind of fuel, and so we add to the energy mix we typically don't take away. And there's a reason for that because we built the dependencies. A key part, this illustrates how interconnected oil and gas is. I could do the same thing for coal and other mining as well, but let's talk about oil and gas. So um, I often will start a conversation by asking people, who, who has ever had a medical diagnosis that they got because they had imaging? Okay, so when you look at MRIs, if you, if for, for people, magnetic resonance imaging, they have big, big magnets, and those magnets are maintained because of helium. The only place we get helium from today is from the production of gas. So literally, without helium, we cannot run MRIs. There's so much in the world that depends on helium production for its use in modern society, that that when people start to think about that, I think that they would see what's being produced in a different light. So the energy transition, for starters, I see oil as as being the thing that could go to a phase-out, all right? But phasing out gas from modern society would be, I think, nearly impossible, okay, unless We have amazing breakthroughs in technology, but I personally don't want to see medical imaging going like, I'm alive because of it. I'm one of the people who benefited. And so I feel very passionate about the need to keep a robust energy mix because it isn't just about energy.
0: Well, that's a very different perspective on on energy. I wasn't aware of, uh, of this aspect in the medical field.
1: Yeah. I think what people aren't Really dialed into um, on the energy transition is that because it's a transition while everyone wants to leapfrog to an end state that creates some pretty wicked problems for supply chains right on on a lot of the renewables it's difficult to get it get things when you need them meeting the demand from the raw material side there's a lot of challenges there, but when you think about just Fuel shifting off of like an airport that might be because you know airports have to go all the time, yeah. and so their backup power tends to be a diesel-powered generator. This is just the worst. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I, I guess the only thing worse is if you had someone like shoveling some coal in some a burner, point. right? Okay, and so which doesn't make sense. So so if you can in the short term replace that diesel with natural gas turbine that can power that. The emissions footprint goes way down, and it's not even just that. There's other things in diesel that, that burn off. So, so that is an important phase shift in the energy transition, and so you don't always have to leapfrog. Um, there are going to be some things that happen in the near term and the far term, but the energy transition is going to be occurring over probably three or four decades, right? Uh, it just depends on what innovation comes and then what disrupts the world, Right. With the geopolitics of the last couple of years, that's been a fairly disruptive event for rerouting energy around the world, okay? Some parts of the transition sped up, some slowed down. So it's hard to predict, but 2050 as a goal is a good one. Uh, We've got to move faster. People know that. Countries know that. Uh, But we have to be pragmatic about how we do it.
0: Well, it's about bringing everyone together. Some entities, some governments might do it even earlier.
1: That's right. But
0: uh, not everyone, unless there is funding, which is another big topic for COP. (laughs) Who's going to fund all this energy transition?
1: That's right. And you know, when you
0: were talking about how much we've increased our need for energy, I remember a few months ago seeing a graph exactly of what you said on how much we've increased all the different types of energy sources that we're using uh, we've never decreased it no no and this is scary and this is something we need to to remind ourselves as well um i'll make sure we share maybe this graph also uh, on our on our um, uh episode uh, notes because this is data we need to share you know and maybe what is what is missing also here in the region is is data sharing i can see how now everyone is trying to you know accelerate a bit the process, sharing um, experiences, um, bad ones, good ones. I believe you're also part of the CSO network here in the UAE. Can you tell us a bit more? Because I think it's a fascinating uh, group of uh, chief sustainability officers who really are doing an amazing job and are able to share, right?
1: Yeah. So this network is something that that we've attended as Baker Hughes for a bit, but this was my first meeting. And I gotta tell you the, the value of being in the room and being able to meet people was um, immediately apparent to me. You know, making the trip over here um, at first blush, maybe people would say, you go over there for one meeting. Well, it isn't one meeting because then what follows that network is a series of other follow-up meetings that allow us to get together with other companies that are really prevalent in this region but not just here. I mean, these are big global companies. The kind of people who were in the room was Unilever and Pepsi and numerous other really big companies, right? Microsoft. And we are small by comparison, right? But the way that we can cross connect to other sectors in that forum is really terrific. And I, and I really got to give um, the Prosperity Institute and, and ERAM really pr- high praise for pulling everybody together. It's not an easy thing to do, but the quality of the dialogue that I had in interacting with people was tremendous.
0: Another very interesting aspect you brought up is um, it's not just about energy, it's about what is around it. So when we burn fuels, what goes into the air, right? Air pollution, it's something that is affecting all of us all over the world and nobody talks about it. It's really underrated, but it comes from from burning fossil fuels the and the wrong way, the wrong ones in the wrong quantities. and uh, and it's all around us,
1: yeah. You know, part of that transition, it's like the example I gave with diesel. there are There are still parts of the world that 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 don't even have that quality of life, right? And so you'll often hear people talk about the energy trilemma. And it's it's making sure that you can have sustainable energy production, right? So that you always have the lights on. Um, I would add, you know, that's affordable, right? And then, then the last part is, is making sure that people aren't priced out and areas that you'd want to bring in energy for the first time. What good is that if they can't even afford it in the first place? You're just creating more poverty, right? And then... Mm-hmm driving that divide even wider. And so there are parts of the world which interestingly um, lend themselves to maybe the flexibility that you'd have with gas, okay? In the short term, so that they can have any energy versus um, burning everything from wood or um, animal dung or whatever it is that people are still using. Biomass, I guess would be a more polite way of saying that. But, then when you when you see that you can build out that connective electron infrastructure to bring in renewables um that makes a little bit more sense you know who knows maybe in some areas we'll leapfrog it but that access to cash in the areas where you have that poverty and energy poverty i mean history has shown cash is not flowing to those areas because people don't even know how to apply for it right and so that's where you're um reflection on the need for collaboration is so important and it's a that's probably the biggest challenge of the energy transition is how do we bring that to parts of the world that have never had it in the first place
0: and that's why in a clean way in a clean way yeah <laughs> that's a, an important part of it and and i think that's also where we welcome announcements such as the one from uh, the president of COP, Dr. Al-Jaber, um, at the Africa Climate Week, where the UAE announced $4.6 billion to actually fund renewable energies in Africa. And I thought this is, was incredible and and very good news in terms of yeah. funding.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're going to hear more funding surprises that come out of this COP, because there's definitely been um, a real push from Dr. Sultan and, and the members of the the climate envoy to focus on financing and what are the real challenges around that, right? Um, there. There's myriad of challenges around financing, but there's definitely um, private sector capital that's there, but it's the connective tissue that gets it deployed, right? And which picking the proj- projects that are going to be more viable, more likely to succeed. But here's the thing. We've got to realize that government money has a time and a place, and it's usually in, in the circumstances where you're trying first of its scaled up kind. You know, We've got a lot of technologies that are accelerating right now that we're going to want to scale up, okay? That's exactly where public funding comes in, right? That helps to de-risk that for companies that are willing to stick their neck out. Okay, so that's great. Okay, then you've got all this other uh, funding that you can get that's really the bigger bucks that are going to have to come in. So you've tested it out with government funding. Now we pull in the banks and they can fund this in other areas and really deploy at scale, okay? That's the part, if you're not a big corporate, it's hard to unlock. So all of those smaller companies that could be really innovative, the challenge for them is connecting the dots financially.
0: When we come back, We continue our discussion on fostering cooperation and Alison's expectations from COP28. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the Priceless Planet Coalition, launched by our partners, MasterCard. The coalition aims to restore 100 million trees around the world by 2025. You can visit the Priceless Planet Coalition website in our show notes to find out more and join the movement. Thank you to MasterCard for their support of Forward Talks and Goonbook. Welcome back. You're listening to a special series of Forward Talks, Climate Leaders Rising Up to COP28, with Alison Anderson-Book, Chief Sustainability Officer at Baker Hughes. So tell us a bit more about what you're doing because, I mean, internally, uh, you've been transitioning, right, uh, as, a, as an industry because you've done a lot of efforts and it's it's a long journey, but uh, you've achieved a lot at the same time. We'd love to hear more about it.
1: Yeah, you know, we as Baker Hughes were one of the first companies to, in our part, of in our sector, to really um, commit to getting to net zero and that's for operational emissions, so so for all the nerds out there, scope 1 and 2 emissions. Okay, so um, as it turns out, a lot of people are, are thinking about the third horizon of time that's out a decade and saying, oh, but the energy transition is going to be so expensive, right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, on today's prices, if we're going to use a lot of that technology for hydrogen or CCS today, it would be very expensive, But what's there right now for the taking is looking at how you can make operations more efficient. And so we have an employee program called Carbon Out, and it's one of the only ones I've seen in any company that is meant to employ and engage every single person at the most basic level of the the company. And so in the year and a half that we've had that program operational, because it takes time to get that sort of a network set up. We have 250 change agents, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we start out with zero. No, no, it's a
0: lot. (laughs) Okay, it's a lot.
1: And off of the back of that, you know, we now have about 55,000 employees. That group has managed to galvanize a 28% reduction off of our base year in three years. Okay, and so that's amazing, right? And I actually get the chills every time I think about it because I'm so proud of everybody because that collective passion has been great and it's really driving our own transition. And when I say that, things that we focus on are looking at electrification of our fleet. We're in the infancy of that part, but we've really done a lot in terms of lighting replacement, all the classic things that you can do to make um, fixed infrastructure better. And then the other part is just teaching people how to, Take sustainability home. Here's the other aspect that the pandemic did for us and many companies, I think, is that unlike most, we decided to account for the emissions of our employees while they work from home because that's their base office. Okay.
0: Not many do that.
1: Not many do that and actually our uh, third party auditor was like, "Why are you doing this? The greenhouse gas protocol doesn't support it." And I said, "But this is real. Like there wasn't work from home when the greenhouse gas protocol was was stood up. So we probably need to modify that." And so so we we've watched now as people start to return to work that our our emissions are shifting. But that was really important. And then we offered some incentives to get people to think about um how to make their homes more efficient. So they get literally save money in their house, save us emissions. I mean, this is the the most effective way of bringing change, making it really personal. Okay, so that's the first thing. Then the second thing that we've been working on is is understanding our upstream and downstream emissions. So we do have an internal scope three goal right now. We're not ready to talk about it because I, I don't like putting something out without a plan. Okay, people need to see that we can do it. And uh, and that means engaging a lot of people across our company. Scope 3 for us is tied to the emissions in our products. Okay. And if we are enabling continued use of oil and gas, then we've got to really be smart about producing products that are more efficient, that don't produce as emiss- emissions, that are closed system. And that is where our scope 3 reductions are really going to come in and be so pivotal, because that means our customers, customers like AdNoc, are are going to get something that allows them to reduce their scope one and two in emissions. That's pretty amazing.
0: There's also another aspect of, of what you do that uh, is very important. I mean, you don't only serve the oil and gas industry, you also uh, move to other uh, energy sectors, and and maybe that also you can tell us more, because that's sure. growing, and, uh, and and we need that
1: yeah well, so so we're a company that has this classic long term oil, oil field service and equipment focus. That's what I think in this region people really know us for. But there's a part of what we do that's on on um, industrial energy, technology and manufacturing. So we if you look at our emissions profile, we're it's really heavy on that side of it, okay? Because we make turbines and things um for power generation. But in addition to that, we have a big digital portfolio and and we put sensors on anything that rotates. And so our sensors show up all over the world and people don't even know that it's a bakery's product. We also have other things that we do that are are really quite cool. Um, One of my favorite things is it's called WayGate. And what WayGate is, is a way to image things like the inside of a phone without destroying it. Okay, so product testing, Often requires like for a long time. Um, the the first thing I learned about it was this was employed for batteries. Okay, it's batteries and cars. The way that they used to figure out if a battery was manufactured correctly is to cut up every the every five battery like the fifth battery in a line. So think about the waste. The waste. Oh my God! That's, right? That's, that's like a phenomenal amount of waste. Twenty percent waste. How is that acceptable? And so, what what Waygate allows uh, companies to do is, we'll make the equipment, and then they can use that to basically, you can send the equipment like whatever it is you want to see without breaking it open, and make sure that it w- that everything is where it should be in the manufacturing process, which is pretty amazing. And so, we've got this broad array of technology, but the The next frontier is our climate tech solutions. and so so, in that, we focus on geothermal as for renewables. and it's it's my personal favorite. I'm a geologist, and so i I tend to want to talk about geothermal a lot. So I have to hold myself back. <laughs> um, carbon capture and storage. Again, I'm a geologist, so I, I think a lot about carbon storage um, or sequestration, whichever term you want to use. And and we focused a lot on on novel capture technologies as well because once you take the cost of capturing um, carbon down, um, suddenly it becomes just as a whole much more economic. We also have hydrogen. Um, we have um, our our main manufacturing site in Italy. It's in Florence, and that's an area where um, we're building out a hydrogen storage facility as well as testing because we have one of the one of the only commercial uh, turbines that can run on hydrogen today, Amazing. and so right now it's a it's a natural gas hydrogen mix. But that's the great part of the energy transition is, while things scale and we can test them, we can start with that mix what we have today with natural gas, and there's not as much hydrogen that's available, right? But as that can change, then then you can suddenly have this turbine that you could put more hydrogen in and phase out natural gas in that case.
0: Another aspect of COP28 would be to, yes, funding, but funding adaptation. Yes. And I know when we briefly spoke <laughs> before today, we you actually mentioned this, right? The importance yeah. of funding adaptation because we talk a lot about mitigation. And maybe this is an opportunity to actually define
1: what mitigation adaptations are and also explain
0: the importance of adaptation for this
1: COP. Mitigation is is basically taking the energy mix today and mitigating the impacts of um, CO2 emissions, like basically saying, we're gonna curtail that. So mitigating the energy system today so that it produces less CO2, okay? And so most immediately, I think one of the big mitigative measures you're gonna hear at COP is gonna be um, zero methane emissions, okay? By 2030, that'll be exciting. So if we do mitigate, we should see more positive impacts faster, okay? at least in certain parts of the world. But in the meantime, knowing that we're probably not going to get to that as fast as we'd like, adaptation allows us to live in a hotter world. And here, I think that's <laughs> like profound. We're good okay? at that. Where we have experience. Yes, it's very <laughs> hot here, okay? Yeah. And so um, imagine it getting hotter. Um, we've got to do a lot of work on adapting because we've got a lot of people that sit on coastlines. They're going to have to come inward as sea level rises. And so the adaptation part is where We've got to put money aside so that it isn't about the response. It's about proactive adaptation, okay? There are going to be people who are listening saying, Allison, but how is that possible? Because you're adapting, and that is something that happens after an event happens, right? But you can anticipate that sea level is going to rise. And so maybe that means in an area they've never had a levee system. Maybe we should put a levee system, Right. Adaptations tends to be unsexy. And it always comes in the way of um too little, too late, giving money to fix a problem later. This is where we need to focus today as well. There's gotta be a dual track. We got to do them at the exact same time, and we need to put a lot of more money in adaptation.
0: Because right now we're putting a lot of money in rescue, in emergency. Yes. So instead of doing that after and unfortunately seeing a lot of losses. Adaptation is the same money; it just needs to be put
1: earlier. Earlier, absolutely. I, at one point in my life, I was living in the Gulf Coast region of of the United States uh, during one of the, mo- the one of the single greatest um, natural disasters that happened, which was Hurricane Katrina, at least for the U.S. And seeing how unprepared we were as a society for that, I mean, it was it was appalling. Okay, and. The net outcome was so much damage and destruction, but also the the sort of intensity of poverty in the region went up. And so long term, it isn't just that people lost their uh, home, which is awful, but they lost their livelihood. And some people moved out of the region smartly and never came back. okay? and And I think that was actually a good adaptation measure on their part. But imagine being upended from your home and becoming, a real-life climate refugee. We had climate refugees during Katrina, and people forget that.
0: It's not about uh, only poor countries. Climate refugees are happening all over the world. All
1: over the world, which is why I bring up that example. Look at the island nations. If you were watching COP last year, I thought that was the most powerful part, was sitting down and listening to the delegates talk about their perspective. They didn't contribute to the problem, but they're the ones who have to adapt the fastest.
0: Well, now, this is leading to my next question.
1: <laughs> what are your hopes for this COP? Everything that we've talked about today and the pressures on the fossil fuel kind of sector here, um, Dr. Sultan is a, is a force, and he's doing a lot of great stuff. So my first hope is that, that people do not discount the outcome and that they give credit where it's due because they're doing some great work, okay? The second part of this is, it's my hope that people come to the region here and see that uh, there's so much that's being done here today, which is outstanding. And it's going to be a solar powerhouse. That's also outstanding. If they go to the expo, they're going to see it firsthand. The third thing is, we're going to see probably a watering down for certain countries uh, in their pledges, their, their NDCs. It, it's my hope that the the pressure of that, they can think more um, smartly about how they can manage an energy transition. L- let me call it something else, a carbon transition. Yeah. Okay. Let, let the focus, even if it's subtle, shift over away from the rhetoric and the blame placing, but instead look at the solution space. Fourth outcome is going to be making sure that people come and see that there are actually solutions available today okay that's going to be different that's going to be the first time that's happened at a cop so we're on cop 28 oof took 28 years to get there but it's going to be here and it's going to be very present so i hope that with the open access that people have for the green zone and having all the technology and the demonstration um while people can't bring really big energy systems, you know, to the, <laughs> I, like we kind of talked about that, that was very difficult to make that happen in the time frame. But you'll at least see uh, videos and and pilots and demonstrations of technology that's available today, and that's going to scale up over the next decade and have the cost come down. That is powerful and it's exciting, and it's the first time we're going to actually see the solutions. At the event, so, so this is the year of the global stock take. Yeah. It's critical that even though the scorecard is going to be sad, okay, it's like, I'm sorry if you're listening and like you didn't realize it was going to be sad, it's going to be sad. However, the optimism is there. And there is this fantastic opportunity this year to see people's light bulbs turn on as they realize that there is technology solution and it's driven by the corporate activities that people tend to like to, to put over in like a let's judge it zone, if you know what I'm saying, like calling them bad guys. That's where the solutions are going to happen. And so if we can see delegates come over and check out technology, that's a huge, huge win. I think it's going to be really exciting um, and I can hardly wait.
0: Well, I think in the UAE in the region we're all very excited because we know we know that, especially when the UAE says. Or they put, you know, their their efforts in something. It uh, it's amazing. Like Expo has been amazing, and and uh, what is uh, happening in this country at such a fast pace is is very inspiring. So I really hope that this optimism will be contagious for the rest of the world once they're here and they understand what's happening. So, Alison, thank you so much. I I could honestly go on and on asking your questions. Maybe we'll do an, another episode one day, but uh, it's been really, really. Interesting, inspiring, and I've learned a lot, so thank you for that. And um, we'll meet you then at COP.
1: Awesome. I can't wait to see you there. Thanks for having me, and I will happily come by and chat anytime. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for joining me today.
0: This special series of Forward Talks is brought to you by Goombook in partnership with MasterCard and with the support of Dubai Government Media Office. I'm Tatiana Antonelli Baya, and this episode was produced by Samantha K. Ruse, Anuradha Bhattacharya, Janelle Lopez, and Shira Say. Thank you, and see you again soon!